0: Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name's John, I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live but we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. If you snuck in during the music time, that's totally cool, but I just need to tell you that I'm John. And I'm the lead pastor here, and we're just so glad that you are here. It is great to see you. It is great to be seen by you if you're watching online. Thank you so much for just checking us out and um, watching where you can and when you can. It's, it's good to have you with us. And uh, one thing I want to I talk about before we actually get into what I am really going to talk about is that um, there's a lot of things we could say about this church, Cross Creek. Uh, one of the things I want to tell you is that two years ago, uh, today, we started our very first practice services before we launched. That's, that's pretty cool. Yep, I'm excited. There you go. So we haven't even been an official church for two years. We started practicing this whole thing and what it would look like two years ago in July. And so we're pretty excited that we're, we're still here. We decided that, you know what, and this isn't knocking any other, any other church or anything like that, but there's a lot of church for church people. We want to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. We want to do things maybe a little bit differently, be a, a, a safe place to ask questions and explore and have doubts and have somebody walk with you through those doubts. And to that end, we want, like I said, we want to help answer and be a part of questions. And so in the seat in front of you, you see a, a connect card. On that card, you can write your name, your email address, and then say, I have a so what about question. If I talk about anything tonight, that's gonna make you say, yeah, that's cool and all, but so what about this? So what about that? We wanna be a part of that question. So you mark that box, and then on the back of your card, you write your question, and we'll get back to you this week through email. Uh, Online, you can do that as well, under the tab that says Discover. It says Ask a Question, and you can do that as well. And so we are in part 4 of an actual 6-part series that we're calling Discovering God. Because so often I think what we know, what we think we know about God actually keeps us from discovering who God really is. Our our past and what people have told us and what we think what we think maybe we've experienced kind of gives us this picture of who God is, but so often I think that's tainted and not exactly the true picture of God. And so Often, what we see when you hear a series, a teaching series at a church called Discovering God, I think you know, there's, there's a usual, usual idea of what, what might come out, what you might usually encounter, what you might usually hear in this type of series. You might hear a series on you know, Discovering God, and so you find out why reading the Bible is important, which is great, it is important to read the Bible. There's a lot of good information in the Bible. It's important, but the Bible isn't God. So when you're discovering God and somebody tries to say, hey, well, here's how you discover God. It's you got to learn all about the Bible. Yes, we discover a lot about God in the Bible, but God is not the Bible. So maybe they move on from that and they give you a theology lesson which I'm sure you guys are really excited about on a nice, warm July evening, a nice theology lesson on, uh, you know, God is eternal, he is unchanging, he is sovereign, he is holy, God is trinity, he is creator, right? All these theological ideas, theological terms. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, meaning he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere and all all the time, which is all true, which is all very, very important. But here's the thing, when we, study him, when we study God that way, even saying study God that way, really makes him seem distant, makes him seem almost unknowable. We can know about him, but we could never really know him when we approach him that way. It almost makes him kinda, kinda scary, like this unknown, scary being. Do you remember growing up, and, and maybe you had some friends growing up, and you'd be playing at their house, and then their, their dad would come home from work. You ever, have, you ever have that? And then that figure that you didn't really know, you heard about him, but he, he was kinda scary, and that was always time for you to go home and go, go have dinner because, you know, this unknown authority figure has shown up. Anybody experience? Yeah, okay, so a few of you know that feeling. That's how I think when we talk about God this way, that's how God feels. Like this kinda unknown, unreachable, unknowable authority figure that it's kind of scary. And so, here's the thing. Those last two uh, qualities of God that I talked about, him being all-knowing and everywhere all the time, seeing everything all the time, whenever I would hear those in like a, a teaching like this or maybe something online, those always got to me. So he knows everything and he sees everything. That wasn't always a comforting idea. That's kind of a scary idea. In fact, when it was, it was taught in, in a lot of ways that I heard, heard growing up in a lot of, um, you know, I, I went to a, a private religious school and when they would talk about God knowing everything, God seeing everything, it was never a, like, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. He knows everything, he sees everything. No, it's you better worry because God knows everything. Yes, that too. And he sees everything. What you thought was hidden, he saw it. It's always been used as like a, a scary thing, like inducing guilt. You ever feel that? Right? The the way a lot of people talk about God, talk about his attributes, make him out to be this scary, almost like creepy figure who's very interested in watching you and making sure you obey his rules. That's how we can picture God, right? He he sees everything, you know. You, you know, you, yeah, you're in church on Sunday, but last night. There's a reason you go to the 4.30 service so you can sleep in on Sunday because I know what you did Saturday. He knows. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doubting. He knows if you've been good. He knows if you've been bad. So be good for goodness sake. Right? I think so often God is seen as a distant and judgmental Santa Claus. Right? So often, he's this guy who can see everything, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good. If you've been good, he'll give you presents or bless you if you're a little bit more religious. If you're bad, well then, you know, you'll get coal in your Bible. I don't know. <laughs> right? That's, that's, how he's so, that's how he's portrayed, as a distant and judgmental Santa in the clouds, A lot of times people use his attributes as a way of making sure that you know you're a sinner and you're not gonna get away with it. What you did in secret is gonna be known someday and then you'll get it. He saw what you did. How could you call yourself a Jesus follower? He knows your choices. He sees your selfish, hypocritical thoughts. How could he ever bless you? Let alone like you. So we get this feeling that God is distant, cold, angry, demanding, or at the very least, just uncaring. I think that's why so many people reject the idea of a God that loves. The idea of a loving God. Maybe there is something out there, but from everything I've heard, he doesn't really care. He kind of got everything in motion and leaves you alone. In fact, I mean, if you think about it, a God who doesn't know you is a God who can't love you. If there is something out there that kind of got everything going, there's a reason for everything, but he's not, it's not a personal being, somebody who actually knows you, and he's not something that can love you. Think about that when like, you were in middle school, if you are in middle school, and you fell in love. Right, did you actually fall in love, did you actually love that, no, you didn't even know him, you saw him for an hour a day in your class, usually the back of their head, and somehow they're the perfect person for you. You didn't love them because you didn't know them. To actually love somebody, you have to know them. See, when, here's the thing, when we truly discover God, which is why we're doing this series, we discover that nothing could be further from the truth that God doesn't know you. See, God is not distant. He's not judging from on high. He's not aloof and ready to smite. God is personal. God is relational, and here's the thing, nothing shows this clearer, I think, than how he interacted with a very, like a little known peasant woman in ancient Israel named Hannah. That's who we're going to talk about tonight, is this unknown, in most people's eyes, insignificant woman named Hannah. And we actually read about Hannah in a, a book. We call it a book. It's kind of a historical account of the founding of the uh, dynasty kings of Israel. We find it in the book of 1 Samuel. It's in, it's in the Old Testament, which means it's in the front of your Bible. It's, it's right before 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. 1 Kings, 2 Kings. If you hit, if you hit Chronicles, you've gone too far. Go back. But we're going to be we're going to be looking at this in the book of First Samuel, and and before we get to the book of First Samuel, I kind of want to give you a little bit of background of how we got to where we're gonna where we're going to talk about. Uh, in our in our first episode of this series, we talked about how God made everything perfect, and He made everything perfect for His creation of humanity. The earth was perfect. There was perfect food. There was no there was no separation between God and humanity. There was no separation between husband and wife. Every the relationships were perfect. Everything was perfect. But then humanity rebelled and brought in sin and ruined everything. And there was nothing humanity could do to fix this mess of sin. And so God promised that someday He would come in Himself and fix the problem of sin. And so when He finally when He decided to get started, He picked a spot and He started cleaning. And the spot he picked was a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, you're the one I'm picking. You're going to start a whole new family for me. You're going to start a whole new nation. And out of this family, out of this nation, is going to come the one who's going to fix the sin mess that all of that humanity is in, that humanity had created. And out of Abraham came the Jewish nation, the Israelites, if you will. The Israelites, maybe you've seen the movie, the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. And God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites, and it was called the Exodus, because Exodus means, like, exit. They were leaving Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt, and he said, and for 40 years they they wandered in the desert. That's a whole other story, but the moment they were ready to go into this promised land that God had promised Abraham, they realized there were other people living there. There were cultures living there, and God said, well, you need to go in and, and take this land. It's your land, and... We can talk about why that works and all that type of thing. You can watch last week's message where we talked about how this idea of a loving God, an idea of a God that told people to conquer, actually can coexist. We talked about that last week. And so, they conquer, they divide the land between the different tribes of Israel, and there's no king, there's no real government, there's just the law that God gave Moses there's judges that God brings up whenever he needs somebody to lead his people. And so there's elders and there's priests that really lead the Israelites. And this is this is ancient Middle East. 11th century BC. A world where women were not really seen as people. They didn't have not just equal rights, they didn't have rights. They didn't have property. It was a little bit better for the Israelite women. In fact, in in the law that God gave Moses, there is is, uh, protections for women, very different than the culture they're in. But in this culture, in this world, there's a man named Elkanah. He's wealthy, most likely. He has a fine lineage. We can trace his lineage back a few generations. Let's read about Elkanah and his family. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 1 talking about Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Stop right there. Because if you're watching online or you're here, you might have caught something. The Bible condones polygamy, right? That's what we just saw. This guy in the Bible has two wives. How can the the Bible condone polygamy? First of all, the Bible does nothing. The Bible is written words, right? People do things. People can condone and condemn. But here's the thing, it's not condoning polygamy. The, The biblical writer is describing Elkanah's life, describing Elkanah's family, describing a practice that did occur during the time. There's nowhere in the law of Moses, there's nowhere in the biblical writings where God says, hey, guys, if you are really blessed by me, you should get another wife. Actually, you actually will see the ridiculousness of that because if somebody is blessed, they probably don't have two wives because whenever the, Bible, whenever the biblical writers talk about somebody who has more than one wife, it never ends up well. Can you imagine that actually working out well? I don't care what TV says, it doesn't work out well. Guys, be careful right now. Be happy with the one you have. But could you imagine? So the Bible does not, the Bible, it doesn't do anything, but the Bible does not condone polygamy. It describes what is going on at the time. It does not prescribe. Does that make sense? Well, it should. It <laughs> should. So it's a description, not a prescription. Not, it's telling you what's happening, not what you should make happen. How's that? So Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Panina. Hannah probably was the first wife, wife number one, and Elkanah loved her, but she couldn't have kids, which at that time was basically the ultimate tragedy for a woman. All of her husband's hopes and dreams depended on her providing a son for him to pass on his name, pass on his lineage to, to, to further his, his inheritance from God as an Israelite. In fact, like I said, uh, Elkanah had a long lineage, so he was probably proud of his lineage and something he wanted to pass on, but he couldn't because Hannah couldn't have kids. Kids were seen as a blessing. From God, which they are a blessing from God, while infertility was seen as a lack of God's favor, maybe even judgment, punishment for something you or, or your ancestors did in some way, which is not anywhere talked about in the biblical writings. It's not a, a thing God does. So, since Hannah couldn't have kids, Elkanah probably found another wife to produce offspring. And so, here you have one woman loved by her husband can't have kids, and so in order to pass on his lineage, he basically replaces her. So there's replacement wife, who basically is being used for her birthing ability. Isn't that the way to make a happy family? <laughs> right, just, just put yourself there if you can in some way, how both of those women are probably feeling. So the obvious happens. Let's go on. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. So they'd, they'd go where the people of their area would go and offer sacrifices and worship God. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all, all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Didn't love Peninnah and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Year after year of being tormented, of being just poked and poked and poked and prodded. You you can picture it. Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any kids? Doesn't she want kids? Oh, yes, son, she wants kids very, very badly. Don't you, Miss Hannah, don't you want kids? Well, then why doesn't she have kids? I mean, doesn't Daddy love her? Probably not. She's a big disappointment. And, you know, usually women can't have kids because God doesn't love them as much. Look how much God loves me, children. Look at all of you. You're so happy and healthy. Poor Miss Hannah. We should feel bad for Miss Hannah. Can you just picture that? Think about it. Sometimes people know us just enough to be able to hurt us, don't they? They know that one thing that can get us and they push it and they push it and they push it. People know us just enough to hurt us. Let's maybe dig a little bit deeper. I'm sure Elkanah had a mother. I'm sure she was so excited that Hannah was her daughter in law. This woman who, who Elkanah had, who gave double portions of, of meat to couldn't have kids. Could you imagine having a mother in law like w- saying, Why don't you have? Well, maybe you can imagine. Where's my grandkids? Where's my grandkids? Where's my grandkids? Where's my grandkids? Why are you wasting my son's time? You don't have kids. Now, I'm guessing Panina had a mom too. Could you imagine her opinion of Hannah? You thought you had in-law problems. Just think of your, your husband's mom and then your, was it called, a sister wife's mom. Both going after you. Hey, but at least her husband loved her, right? Well, that's what Elkanah thought. Verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Baby, you got me. Look at me. You don't need all the kids. You don't need the ten sons. Aren't I enough? Men don't change. Been thousands of years, they don't really change. You ever feel like the people you rely on, the people you care for, the people you care about the most, just don't understand you, don't really get what's going on inside of you? Right? They they offer advice or tell you why what you are feeling is actually not what you should be feeling. Isn't that fun? You ever feel that? Why are you you shouldn't be sad? Well, thanks, that helps so much. Appreciate that help. See, that's not a new thing. That's humanity. Because our usual response is to fix and critique instead of just understanding and supporting. Our usual response is to try to fix something or or critique and tell you why you're wrong, why what you're feeling isn't how you should be feeling. And here's the thing, that's not love. Trying to fix without trying to understand is not love. Yeah, but I'm just, if you have to say I'm just, then you're not. I'm loving, but I'm just telling them the truth. I'm just saying it like it is. That's not love. That's you trying to be right. Trying to fix without trying to understand is not love. Fixing and critiquing without understanding and supporting really only creates more isolation, more separation. Right, they don't truly understand you, they don't know what's going on, they're just shooting advice at you, they don't care about you. And so you withdraw more and more. You're more separated, you're more isolated. And so Hannah is constantly tormented by her rival. A rival that's bent on proving she's better, trying to prove to maybe this husband, who obviously only loves Hannah, that she should be loved. So she's getting that constantly. Hannah's getting that constantly. Her feelings are brushed aside and ignored by really the only person who who cares for her. But don't worry, it gets better for Hannah. Verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli being the very caring religious leader he was, Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not, do not, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Even the priest of God didn't understand Hannah. He sees an emotional woman. So obviously she's drunk. Gosh. Have you ever been completely misunderstood? I can't, really, I can't think of something more frustrating than being totally misunderstood. Either someone mistakes your tone, misreads your text. Don't ever try to settle an argument over text, by the way. Just call them. Maybe they're upset they don't understand your wording. You worded it a different way and they see it differently. They ever been judged just by somebody looking at you? And being like, Oh, you're that kind of person. Someone who didn't have the whole story, but they jumped to a conclusion about your motives and choices anyway and put that on you. See, jumping to conclusions rarely lands you on the truth. That's pretty good. You should tattoo that. Jumping to conclusions rarely lands you on the truth. But that's, that's a good one. You should put a sign of that over your little essential oils box in your house. That would be great. But seriously, being misunderstood is so infuriating, isn't it? I think it's because we want to be understood. And we want to be understood because we want to be known. When people misunderstand our motives, misunderstand why we're doing what we're doing, misunderstand our choices, misunderstand our words, it's so upsetting because they think we're somebody else. They think we're something we're not. We're not fully being known. And kind of like we hinted earlier, to to be loved, you have to be known. So if you're misunderstood, you can't fully be known, you can't fully be loved. You can't love what you don't know. That's why so often we fight to be understood. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, but it sounded that way and that made me feel this way. Yeah, but I didn't mean it that way. But how you said it, but that's not what I said. And so everybody's misunderstanding. And we get angry and we get upset because we're not being known. So Hannah is tormented by her overly fertile rival, brushed aside by her oh-so-loving husband, and completely misunderstood by her religious leader. But there's something else we see about Hannah here too. In that prayer that we read where she's praying, she's distraught and she's praying, there's something else we see. She assumes and she relies on a God caring about her. She assumes God is listening to her. She relies on the fact that he will hear her She knows there's a relationship there. The creator and sustainer of the universe, God Almighty, the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, the God who parted seas, the God who thundered on a mountain giving Moses the law, the God who brought down the walls of Jericho, she assumed and relied on the fact that he saw her, that he knew her, and that he heard the prayers of her heart. See, she doesn't use fancy religious language when she's praying. She doesn't go through some ritual in order to get God's attention. In fact, she barely gets any words out. She doesn't say anything. She's praying from her heart, and her lips are just moving. But she assumes a personal relationship with him. And she's honest. She's honest about her anger. I'd be angry too. She's honest about her fear and her frustrations. She's honest about her disappointments. She's honest about what she truly wants. And here's the thing. This emotion, this um, familiarity with God Almighty did not make God feel uncomfortable. Did not make him feel nervous that this person was emotional towards him. Did not make him feel flustered See, God can handle the real us. God can handle the real us. We don't have to be polite and, and, and choose our words perfectly and try to impress him with all of our knowledge about the Bible or how to pray or anything like that. He can handle the real us. And so, this happy family goes home. And the writer puts it this way. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. See the writer uses this phrase the Lord which is the Jewish word for Yahweh. So holy that they never put the um, vowels in it because they couldn't write out this full name of God. The the self-existent eternal God is what that means name means. This is the name God told Moses, this is what you call me by. I am that I am. Yahweh. This is God's holy, powerful, personal name. The Lord. It says, the Lord, that Lord, remembered her. Not like he's like, oh yeah, I remember you. That's not what that means. It means he was thinking about her. He had compassionate thoughts toward her. He gave attention to her. And so she becomes pregnant. And she has a son, the thing she asked for, and she names him Samuel. And Samuel grows. And when he's about three, Hannah and Elkanah actually keep their vow and give Samuel to the priest to be raised in the service of God. And Samuel grows And he impresses all around him. And he actually becomes the final judge of Israel, the final leader of Israel before there is a king. He becomes a prophet who spoke for God. And he is the one who anoints the first king of Israel, Saul. And he's also the one who takes that anointing away from Saul and gives it to a man named David. Because of Samuel, King David came to Israel. Because of King David, God used King David, we'll talk about him a little bit next week, to bring about this dynasty of kings. And out of that dynasty came Jesus, the promised Savior that God had promised way back in Adam and Eve, way back to Abraham, that out of them would come the Savior to fix all of humanity's mess of sin. God used Hannah's child, the one she prayed for, the one nobody understood her that she wanted this child not just to bless her, but all of Israel and the rest of the world for all time through bringing about the dynasty that would bring the Savior, Jesus. But there's more for Hannah. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Take that, Panina. Meanwhile... <laughs> You should. There's. You actually should read this story because after she gives birth to Samuel, she she does this song, this prayer that actually Jesus' mother Mary uses a part of later in her in her prayer when she becomes pregnant. But basically, it's talking about how God will will uh, justify those who love Him, and you should read what she says He'll do to your Anna. It's great. <laughs> and she's obviously talking about Panina. You just read it. <laughs> Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. See, God gives us more than we ask for. We think we're asking too much. He said, I can give you more. You can't even imagine what I can give you. I remember, I remember one, one time just asking God, and we were on this, uh, I was a youth pastor, we were on this mission trip, and it was to Salem, and so we would go out every day and tell people, hey, God loves you. There's, no, there's nothing you have to do to earn God's love. There's nothing you have to do to prove anything to God. He loves you. And he wants you to enjoy that love forever. And I said, God, this is Thursday night. We're ending on Friday. I said, God, you know, we've been talking to people downtown all week. we I have been going to the malls and just telling people that you love them. This has been really awkward and hard. And I have to lead the kids, so I have to go first every single time. We well, just have one person say, you know what? That, I have been looking for somebody like that. I want, I want that relationship with Jesus. I want, I want to be a Jesus follower. So just give me one Just let these kids see it happen one time that you really do love people and you can change people. And so on Friday, actually, yeah, Friday, that happened. We were talking to somebody and they said, yes, I want want to be a Jesus follower. And we prayed with them, we had that whole thing and I was laying in bed that night and I said, God, thank you so much for answering my prayer. Thank you so much. And in the way God does, I had this feeling, this sense of, you could have asked for more. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right could have asked for more. We can always ask for more. He's not overwhelmed by our requests. He's God Almighty. He always gives us more than we ask for, and he uses us for more than we can imagine if we just trust him and let him. See, God saw and cared for this lowly, infertile, 11th century B.C. Israelite woman he paid attention to her. He cared for her. He loved her. He cherished her and gave her more than she ever dreamed of. And so, my question is who are you? Well, I'm just some 21st century Oregonian, if you're lucky. Maybe you're a Californian. No. But you're just some 21st century Oregonian, aren't you? Maybe you're a mom, just a mom. Maybe you're a teacher just a teacher. Maybe you're the occupier of cubicle B. Maybe you're retired. Maybe you're remarried. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're married and just trying to hang on. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're old. Maybe you're infertile. Maybe you're overly fertile. Maybe you're broken. Listen. If you've fallen asleep, listen. If you're on a different webpage, come back. God remembers you. God remembers you. And there's more. God sees you. God sees you. God sees you. God sees you. The real you. He sees your thoughts, your fears, your anxieties, your angers, your hopes, your dreams, your heartbreaks, your longings. He sees all of you He sees everything you do and are, and everything you wish you didn't do, and everything you wish you were or weren't. He sees you. And he knows you. God knows you. God knows you. God knows you, the real you. He knows your past. He knows your present circumstances. He knows your future. He knows your secret prayers. He knows who you truly are. When nobody else understands you, He knows you. He knows who you can be and He knows who you will be. He knows why you get frustrated at times. Even when you don't know, He knows. Even when you can't figure out why you feel this way, He knows. He knows you. He knows what makes you laugh and he knows what makes you hurt. He sees you and he knows you and on top of all of that, God loves you. God loves you. Not because he has to, because he chooses to, he wants to. He loves you and he likes you. You, the real you. He's not disinterested in you. He's not distant from you. And he's not disappointed in you. And he's not mad at you. He sees and knows everything about you. And likes you. And he loves you. So he sees you. He knows you. He loves you. So you can choose to trust him. You can trust him. Even when it seems you can't, He knows you, he knows what you need, he knows what your future looks like, you can trust him. You can trust that he hears you. You don't have to have the right words. Hannah didn't even have words at first, and he heard her. Like I said, you don't have to be polite. You can tell him how you feel. You can trust that you're not overwhelming him, you're not bugging him. You tell him how you feel even when you're not sure why you feel that way. You can tell him what you're mad about, what you're sad about, what you're happy about, what you're anxious about. You can tell him because he knows you. He loves you. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your family, with your job, with your choices, with your future. You can trust him with your eternity that when he says, I died for you, there's nothing else you have to do to make God happy. You simply have to trust me that I paid the penalty for sin. You can trust him because he knows you, he sees you, he loves you. You can trust him. Now think about it. Think about what it would have been like if Hannah had been able to have kids right away. If she was the the fertile one and there was no Penina. And she never had to go through that sorrow, that pain, that rejection, that humiliation. These are small, close-knit villages and tribes. They know what's going on. She would have been an entirely different person, wouldn't she? I mean, would, would she have experienced and discovered God the same way if she didn't go through that? The very thing she hated about her life, the very thing she hated about herself, is the thing that brought her close to God, and brought her the greatest blessing of her life. See, our greatest disappointments and failures can lead to our greatest joys and victories when we decide to trust the God who sees us, knows us, and loves us. So yes, God is omniscient and omnipresent. He does see everything and he does know everything. But it's not so he can judge That's so he can stand back and be like, I know what you did. You're gonna burn. That's not why he, he has those qualities. It's so he can personally and relationally know you and love you. God's not a scary Santa keeping tabs on everyone. He is a personal God. He is a loving and perfect father, supporting, guiding, and giving everything we need to be who he made us to be. Think about it. The God that created and holds everything together knows you, sees you, and loves you. What's there to be afraid of? What's there to hold back from? What's there to refuse to trust him with? Nothing. See, if someone knows everything about you and loves you, you can trust them. You can trust them. When you are fully known and fully loved, you are free to fully trust. When you are fully known and still fully loved, you are totally free to fully trust. You know that they have what's best in mind for you. So however it looks for you today, whether it's, it's here or it's online someday, figure out what your step is to choose to trust him. Maybe it's saying, hey, I want to be a Jesus follower. I, I, I've never made that actual, there's never been a point in my life where I said, yes, I want to follow Jesus and trust him with my entire life. Maybe that's your step of trust. Maybe your step of trust is this thing that I've been so anxious about, I just want to give it to God. I just want to say, God, this is this is on you you love me, you'll take care of me, I choose to trust you. That hurt you have, maybe it's not gonna go away tomorrow, but you can know that he loves you and that there is progress being made. That whatever is happening right now is part of a a future that he has for you that he knows is gonna happen and you can trust him that he loves you and he wants what's good for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you. Thank you for knowing us inside and out, seeing us, seeing everything we are, not just a label, not just the the sum of our choices, but just who we really are. And thank you for loving us. Loving us, not in spite of that, but because of that, because you made us and you chose us to be alive right now. Show us how much you love us. Show us how much we can trust you. Give us the courage to take whatever step you've put on our hearts to take in trusting you. Thank you for seeing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you guys have a great week. If there's something you want to talk about, something you want to pray about, Patrick and Janet are going to be over here. They're trained prayer partners to listen and pray. If if that's what you're kind of feeling that you need, and it'll be quiet in here, and you can talk with them. But um, thank you for being here. I hope you guys have a great week, and next week we will continue this series talking about a little-known dude named David. Hope you have a great week.